You are listening to Open Science Talk, a podcast about, well, open science. Today's topic is really about the historical relationship between publishing, business and scholarly mission. My guest today is Eileen Fife. She is an historian of science, technology and publishing and professor of modern history at the University of St. Andrews. Eileen Fife, uh, welcome to uh, Open Science Talk. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here in the far north. Let's go straight to it. I've invited you to talk a bit about the history of scholarly publishing. And you just had uh, a presentation on uh, money or mission. So uh, what is the key points there? What is the, the historical significance of both of these terms? So I wanted to talk about money or mission because I think that from the perspective of learned society publishers, for instance, adapting to Plan S or to any form of open access, the balance between money, generating income, and mission, a mission for scholarship, service to the scholarly community, that, that balance is a difficult one if you're asking a learned society to make the move from its current publishing model to some form of open access. And certainly in the in the UK context that I come from, learned societies have often found it difficult to think about how to make that transition to open access. Um, and I happen to be a historian of scholarly societies, learned societies. So what I so what I was interested in doing was exploring the history of the concept of mission for scholarship, particularly in terms of circulating knowledge, and trying to think about where money started to come into it. So I've studied the history of the Royal Society in London. It's the publisher of the world's oldest scholarly journal, dating back to 1665. And one of the things I can tell a story of is that Although in 1665, the man who set it up, a man called Henry Oldenburg, who established the philosophical transactions, he did hope to make a little bit of money, but he was disappointed. And for the intervening 300 and something years, virtually nobody made any money out of publishing the philosophical transactions. So what was happening was that the initially the editors and later the Royal Society itself were, we would say, subsidising the production and circulation of the journal. So what I've just been talking about at the Munin conference was about the situation in the late 19th century where well over half the print run, probably more like two thirds of the print run of the journal was being distributed through non-commercial channels. It was being given away to the members, but more importantly, it was also being gifted or exchanged to universities all over Great Britain and some in Europe and North America. And it was being gifted or exchanged to other institutions, whether that's the Tromsø Museum or the Academy in Trondheim or the Public Library in New South Wales or the Institute of Standards in Manila in the Philippines. Large numbers of copies were being given away because that was a way of circulating knowledge. It was a way of enhancing the reputation of the society and nobody at that point in time was imagining that journals could be or should be commercial objects that you would sell. The flip side of that is that when production costs were getting higher because more research was being produced and there were more places around the world where you wanted to send it, that becomes quite difficult to sustain. And then you've got the situation of, well, how can we cover those costs? Maybe if we could sell it, we could cover more costs. Oh, but you know what? It's more difficult to sell because most of the people who might buy it are already being given it for free. But in the world of the 19th, early 20th century, that sense of circulating scholarship, because that's the, that's the way, you, that's what you should do, that you should circulate scholarship for the sake of the scholarship, for the sake of the authors to be read, for the sake of the sponsoring society, for its reputation. That was how it was assumed scholarly journals worked. And it's only from the middle of the 20th century that we see money becoming in, coming into it, partly because of problems that learned journals were facing and 
eventually by the late 20th century, a desire to actually actively make money, which is a really recent phenomenon, but it is a challenging one for us to deal with now. But in that era before the war, uh, how was it financed? The answer differs depending on which organisation you're talking about, because there were some national academies around Europe which had substantial amounts of government or crown funding. Um, so for instance, I know that in Stockholm, for instance, the academy there had substantial amounts of help from the government, particularly through having a, mon a monopoly on almanac publishing, which was quite... Um, remunerative. And they also had um, post office privileges, which helped them. In the case of the Royal Society, they didn't have that kind of backing from the state initially. What they had was the income from their members. They had an endowment because being a 17th century foundation, by the time we get to the 19th century, they had actually built up an endowment, which helps. By the 1890s, that's not proving enough. And they also managed to get government support um, in, through a different way, in this case, through a, a direct grant in aid that they also used to help other learned societies in Britain. They also get a bit of industrial sponsorship, which surprised me when I discovered it. So that was in the in the 1920s. And so what you've got in the early 20th century is this mishmash of different funding streams, or if you wish, a broad base of funding. So that no, no single reliance on any one source that might then dry up. It's very different from the scenario now where sales is the major source. Um, if you're trying to imagine a transition away from sales as your source of income, sales is a big thing that you've got to replace. Whereas in the earlier 20th century, what you had was lots of different bits and bobs that all just about provided enough to keep publishing self-sustaining. So so what happened after the war? Because you, you mentioned that whole transition and and publishers uh, having more, um, uh, more, well, it, it seems like they saw an opportunity um, to make money here, but how, how did this actually happen? I think there's two things happening after the war. This is the Second World War. <laughs> Two things happening after the Second World War. One, that learned society publishers were finding it more and more difficult to cope with the increasing scale of research. They had been struggling since the late 19th century, but the government funding, the industrial funding, they, were, they'd, they'd managed to survive. Once we're in the post-war world, there's an explosion of research um, particularly in the sciences, but no, not only that. There's more universities, there's more hires, there's more labs opening. There's a lot more research to be produced. So that puts strain on the learned societies. So one question in the post-war world is how will they survive? Can they survive? How can we keep them going? Do we need more subsidies from somewhere? Or do we need some other, some new model? The second strand to this is the emergence of new players in, in publishing. Not learned societies, but new publishing firms. The most famous ones are Pergamon Press, which is run by Robert Maxwell and started in the late 1940s, and Elsevier and its predecessors. And what they were doing was getting into the scientific journal publishing business. So what they were doing was moving into scientific journal publishing business and making it profitable. That's significant because there were some commercial publishers before, but they were usually running journals at a loss. What happens in the post-war world because of all the more labs, more institutions, more funding for science. It's possible to sell journals to universities. In the pre-war world, some universities could buy journals, some receive them as gifts. In the post-war world, you've got much more lavish funding for universities, you've got more funding for university libraries, and the new publishers realise that actually you could just sell your journals to libraries. And especially if you did this internationally, and that is quite significant, that a lot of the earlier journal publishing was mostly produced in a national context. You sell it internationally, you can get a big enough market among the university libraries. So that's going on with the commercial publishers. Meanwhile, you've got the learned society journals going, can we survive? Um, it's a difficult world. And by the way, we've got to compete with these commercial publishers. 
do we have a role anymore? You know, what is the role for learned journals if commercial publishers can do scholarly publishing too? It's quite an existential problem for learned journals, actually. So, but that whole idea of selling to institutions that came from the commercial uh, side, doing it at scale and doing it well. It's not that nobody before them had thought of selling to institutions. Clearly, people were, but in the the learned journal world that I'm talking about before the before the war, selling to institutions wasn't a major focus. It's not something that anybody was really trying very hard to do. Yeah, if an order came in from a university library, then of course we'll sell it to them. But that's a different in scope from what happens after the war, where we're starting to see direct mailings, we're seeing publicity flyers, we're seeing efforts to get lists of all the university libraries in the United States and try and sell them our journal. It's a much more active marketing thing that we see after the war than had been happening before. So, so what happens in the 70s and 80s? You mentioned that as uh, the end of the golden age of, uh, of publishing. What do you mean by that? So I think that what happened in the 50s and 60s is that the commercial publishers saw an opportunity because of all these relatively well-funded university libraries. And the learned publishers who survived, many of them did, who, they had to adapt to this new world. They did it by also selling to university libraries mostly. But that only works as long as the university libraries have the funds to buy all these journals. And remember, there's more and more journals being produced all this time. So it's becoming more of a challenge for institutional libraries. And by the 70s, we're just in a different world. The economic and political climate has changed from the 1950s. And so a business model, a, uh, yeah, so a business model that worked for the early 1960s is more difficult to make work in the late 1970s or the 1980s. As you know, anyone who's familiar with university library budgets to this day know that there just isn't enough money there to buy all the journals. And that means that it's more difficult to rely on university libraries, institutional libraries in general, as as your main source of funding. So so why is this important? Why do we, why should we look at the history uh, of uh, publications and how it has been funded? I think it matters because when because right now we're trying to work out how to adapt the system of scholarly communication again. We're trying in many ways to undo the flip that happened in the 1950s. We're trying to move away from sales as a source of income, whereas what happened in the 50s was a move to sales as a source of income. And so I think realising that there was a flip in the 50s and 60s, realising that that flip was there does two things. One is that it shows us what was possible what was there before. It gives us some ideas. Maybe we're not going to recreate the same systems that were there before, but realising that there were these different streams of funding put together should make us think creatively about how one might create something equivalent to that. Not necessarily exactly the same, but equivalent. And the other more general point is to realise that the commercial model of publishing, the sales-based model of publishing, is not inevitable or necessary. And in some contexts, I don't know what it's like here in Norway, but in some contexts within the UK, you hear the argument that, well, of course, publishing is a commercial operation. It, it, there's there's an industry of academic publishers. And of course, they we must protect their interests. We must make sure that uh, whatever we do doesn't harm that industry. That assumes that the commercial publishing industry are the people who know about academic publishing. That's only been true since the 1950s and 60s. Um, and what I would like to know is where are the voices of the learned societies and scholarly communities in that, because they historically are the ones who knew about scholarly publishing and communication. So one thing that strikes me is that it seems like um, um, this whole transition or this whole um, 
development of publishing, it kind of follows the trends of the society uh, at all. It follows technology. It follows um, uh, economy. Um, so why we live in a society where um, you know the commercial side is larger than in the 50s in the 60s i guess so why should we think that um it is possible to change it um if that thought is correct that it just follows the overall um development of the society but there are some things that markets don't provide very well their commercial suppliers work well in a scenario where you have a properly functioning market. This is where you really need an economist to discuss all the, these terms. But in academic publishing, we don't have a market that functions in an ordinary way. We don't have goods that can be replaceable. You don't have a choice as a reader between buying this journal or that journal because they're equivalent, because they're not equivalent. And thus the, the pricing structures don't work. And thus we end up with pricing going up and up and not any obvious recourse to that. There are other sectors of society where we also know that market solutions often don't work, whether we're dealing with health or welfare or education, um, areas which in many countries the state runs. And then there are probably some examples in between that are a mixture of state and private enterprise, or also of, I mean, there's a, there's a phrase that's been bandied around recently about um, common goods or club goods, rather than just thinking of things as being public or private, but thinking of things that are for uh, a particular community, in this case, the scholarly community. And I think we need to start thinking about scholarly communication not as being something that creates a, a traditional good that can be sold in a regular market situation, but by thinking about it that as something that's produced by a particular community, largely for the benefit of that community, but we could provide access to the public. That's the open access part of it as well, because the technologies exist to do that now. And so I don't think it's obvious that we should assume that commercial providers can provide this type of thing. That said... I do think that academic communities need help in doing this because historically we don't see learned societies operating their own printing press, making their own paper or generating their own ink. They do the editorial work, they do the authorial work, they do the overall strategy, but you still need someone to help you with the technical side of view. So I think there could still be a role for some form of I think there is still a role for third-party providers of various technical services, whether that is platforms, whether that is open source software, you know, whatever it is. It's not as if we have to all do all the work ourselves. But I think the important point is who's in charge and who's keeping intellectual control and who's setting this, the strategy for it. But you mentioned leadership as one of the key points. What do you mean by that? I mean that a lot of the discussions that I see, certainly in the English-speaking world, are about what funders want, sometimes what government wants, but often what funders want, perhaps what librarians want because they're worried about their budgets, perhaps what publishers want. We don't so often see the voice of researchers. We see a lot of people saying, researchers should do this, and they appear to be talking to individual researchers. And we see some individual researchers who are particularly active in these matters also speaking out. But what we don't so often see is the collective voice of researchers who are, after all, the authors, the reviewers, the primary readers of all this material. And that's, a, that's an organisational thing because funders are bigger organisations, publishers are bigger organisations, and what's more, they have collective organisations. Researchers work for universities. They might belong to learned societies. They might belong to several learned societies. They might belong to a national academy, or they might not. There, there's not such an obvious body or organisation to represent researchers' voices. 
And in my own national context in the UK, I mean, there is a, a, U, a university's governing body, but there isn't a learned society's governing body. And there isn't a thing that brings together all the learned societies, whereas there is in some other countries. So it means that we're not really seeing somebody with significant lobbying power and moral authority to represent researchers. We're not seeing such a body in these debates. We see the voices of publishers, funders, librarians to an extent, and they're all trying to make policy for what the researchers should be doing. Uh, so sort of a researcher's union, is that the... Well, it could be, but I'd make it, I would make it discipline-based. Um, I mean, I think that there are plenty of learned societies in existence who could be those voices, but to be effective, they're going to have to work together because you don't want to hear from the Society for the Historians of French History, the Society for the Historians of Science, the Society for the Historians of German Culture, and also the Microbiological Society and the whatever. You don't want all those different voices. What you want is something that brings those voices together. So last question is, how do you see that mission, the word mission, uh, presented today? Do you see it today or or is it uh, something that belonged to the past? You see it at university presses, some university presses anyway, where I think there, I think there are university presses who recognize that part of their mission that makes them distinctive from other publishers is their link to the university, is their commitment to scholarship. But they still have to be self-supporting and in some cases generate a profit, sorry, a surplus. I think that at learned societies, mission, we do see the word, but what's shifted is whether running a journal counts as part of mission anymore. Because given the commercial success that quite a number of journals have had in the late 20th century at generating income, which is then used for other charitable purposes, then how do you balance the good that you get from circulating information versus the good you get from generating money that you use to fund PhD students to go to conferences, to fund research activities, to do whatever else you're doing? You can certainly argue that all of those things, circulating knowledge and the other stuff, it's all mission-based activity. But how would you value one over the other? And that's, I think, the conversation that learned societies need to be having, because right now the publishing is often seen as a way that generates the money for the other things, rather than being a good thing in itself. They are difficult decisions to have. Um, but I th I'm convinced by the argument that funding our PhD students to go to conferences through the library budgets that pay subscription fees that enable the grants to be made doesn't seem to me like an efficient way of doing things. Elaine Fife, it has been a pleasure. You're very welcome. Hi, everybody. This podcast is produced by the University Library at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway. Thanks for listening.